Have a seat. It's good to see you all um, this morning. Thank you, Mr. Staley. I appreciate it. Um, I have um, a few topics that I want to uh, talk about this morning. Both of them connected with um, yesterday's Thanksgiving event. And, um, and, you know, we always run, I, I feel like we always walk this, this somewhat delicate or thin line in, um, like when we talk about the things that God does. Because a lot of the times when God does something, right, He does it through His church. He does it through those who trust in Him. Um, and so we may feel the tendency to talk a lot about what we did without talking a lot about what God did through us, right? And, and I want you to understand that I'm aware of that really delicate balance, okay? I'm, I'm aware that sometimes it can either look one way or the other. And because I'm aware of it, my, my tendency is always, or my tendency wants to be as a leader and a pastor to be really careful about, about grabbing any credit, right, in anything, in anything that we do, okay, because the danger is in grabbing too much credit rather than not enough, right, um, but I also want us to be aware that it is right and good and true to celebrate, to remember, to recount the awesome goodness of our God. To speak of His wonders. To speak of His majesty. To speak of His miracles. I, I hardly think, right, that the disciples never talked about what an experience it was to witness the feeding of the 5,000 with a small boy's lunch. Right? That they, that, that, I mean, talk about, some, talk about something you never forget. Right? And, and, and to talk about and to remember the goodness and glory of God and the faithfulness of that little boy in offering what, good, what little he had. Right? Oh, this is a whole series. This is a whole sermon, Right? When we offer whatever we have, no matter how small to God, He takes it and multiplies it for His glory, right? Uses it for His purposes and multiplies it beyond so that there's even more left over at the end, right? Um, so I want you to be aware that as I, you know, over the next few weeks, we're going to still be talking about the Thanksgiving event. We're going to have um, pictures posted on social media. It's not in an attempt at all to say, hey, look at all the great things that Conduit did. Um, but it is, it is a, I don't want to say an attempt, but it is an exercise in being reminded 
of what God did yesterday, what he will continue to do in the city, what we are praying that he will do in the lives of people who are far from God, who are far from the church, who are literally hungry. And um, we'll never really stop doing that. Um, you see, Conduit, Conduit has a long history, or I would say a, a <laughs> we don't really have a long history. Um, <laughs> but if... <laughs> If our history, right, the history of Conduit is a long history of feeding people in the city. Um, if you remember all the way back from the beginning of Conduit, we have been feeding people since uh, food. Like, this is not a spiritual like metaphor, right? Um, feeding them actual food that they put in their mouth and goes into their stomach and nourishes their body. We have been doing that really from the beginning of the church. From pretty much day one when it was planted. Um, you could even say that in, within the city, um, there has become a little bit of a reputation of conduit doing things like that. And it is one of the reasons, one of the reasons, that when we do events like we did yesterday, we get such good turnout because the city knows. All right? Um, now, that reality and that reputation has not been without its challenges. Um, we have been, have been, we have faced um, lots of questions about why we do what we do, about why or, or how we do it, or what, what the reason is that we're doing it. And I would say that many times, um, both from within and outside of the church, those, those, those questions have not just been questions, but they've been, they've been challenges. Why are you guys doing this? You're a church. We're going to get to the main question that we have sometimes, when we get questions about this, the question that we've received. Um... But you, you, may, you may or may not know that, um, you know, the church is in Jamestown, of course, in the city, and the, the county that we're in, Chautauqua County, um, has a major food problem. Did you know that? Did you know that Chautauqua County has a major food problem? See, many of us, myself included, without someone telling me, without someone showing me, without being immersed in the reality of people's lives that are not my own, uh, is that I would say, well, I don't see any food problems. There's grocery stores all over the place. I can get in my car and go to Wegmans or go to Tops or go to Brajotas and I can get all the food that I have money for or need when, whenever I want it and it's not, uh, not an issue. Right? I don't see that there's a real food issue in Chautauqua County. Well, statistically speaking, um, Chautauqua County has geographical areas that are larger in percentage than, um, than um, only, other, only one other county in all of New York State has a higher percentage of areas that um, the USDA considers to be food deserts in all of New York State. And a food, a food desert is an area, um, a geographical area, where there is not, um, there is not 
like reasonable access to fresh, healthy, nutritious food within a, I think it's a one mile radius. So we have whole communities of people who if they don't have transportation, they don't have a vehicle, if they don't have the resources to drive out to Lakewood, to go to Tops, to go out to Brajotas, who are forced to either then walk to get their food or their groceries at one of those locations, or they're fo forced to, or they, the only other option they have is to buy their food, what they eat, from places like 7-Eleven, um, Dollar General, um, Family Dollar, places that are close to where they can reasonably walk. Now, is there anything wrong with buying food and groceries there? Well, no, of, of course there's not, but we know typically that Dollar General does not stock a wide variety of healthy fruits and vegetables and um, good food for a person, and their prices are typically um, inflated there. And so it creates a cycle of people not having access to food that nourishes and feeds their body in a healthy way. And so conduit, um, as a part of our belief that God has called the church to incarnate the kingdom of heaven on earth, knowing that in heaven, right, people are going to have um, access to as much delicious food as they want whenever they want it, right at their fingertips. Right? That, that conduit has, as, as part of its vision, the elimination of food deserts in Chautauqua County. So that every man, woman, and child would not have to wonder where their next meal would be coming from or how healthy it was going to be or if it was going to nurse their children or whatever the case may be. And so we've, we've tried to build vision around that. We've tried to build strategy around that. And we are continuing to do so even now, develop even more specifically vision around um, feeding people in our county, in our region, in our area, because we believe that food is important <laughs> to people. You know, well, I really believe that we should teach people to fish instead of giving them fish. I agree. But it's really hard to learn how to fish if you're always hungry. Listen, if you get me hungry, don't expect me to have a good attitude about anything, okay? <laughs> anything. Um, so, this all, this all um, morphs into or fades into this one main question that um, we, I say we, I, I mean me, and some other leaders here, will often receive when it comes to events or instances like this where we feed lots of people in a big push in one moment or over a summer is, well, as a church... Shouldn't we really focus more on sharing the gospel with people rather than feeding them? 
I mean, as a church, isn't this really what we should be doing? We should be focusing more. We put all these resources, all this money, all this time and effort into this big event yesterday. Shouldn't, shouldn't we instead share the gospel with people? Rather than feeding them. Um, I have a few directions to go with this. Number one is that the question, I think, creates a false dichotomy. And what I mean when I say it creates a false dichotomy is it makes us choose one or the other. It makes us choose either feeding people as an option or sharing the gospel as an option, but does not allow any space for them to be mutually present. In fact, it says that sharing the gospel and feeding people are mutually exclusive. And so we must then, as a church, focus on sharing the gospel rather than feeding people. And what I think is that the example of Scripture shows us, the life of Jesus shows us, the pattern of the early church shows us that sharing the gospel and feeding people are not mutually exclusive. They are, they are not to be separated. It would be saying something to a kin like, well, isn't, healing, isn't Jesus healing people in the Gospels? Isn't that really separate from, shouldn't that really be separate from sharing the Gospel with them? I mean, you can't share the Gospel and heal people. you really got to choose one or the other. You can't share the Gospel or, um, or cast out a demon from someone, Jesus. you got to pick one or the other. You can't feed a person, Jesus, and share the Gospel with them. you got to do one or the other. It creates a false dichotomy that pigeonholes the phrase sharing the gospel into someone something into something that someone does on a random street corner in the middle of a big city. And the example of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus and the life of the early church show us that feeding people and Jesus-centered ministry are not mutually exclusive to each other. So I want to look at a few examples from both the Gospels and um, the book of Acts. First, I want to look at the example of Jesus. Okay, So uh, at Conduit here, our number one core value is that Jesus is everything. Right? When in doubt, Jesus. Right? When in doubt, Jesus. All the time. The example of Jesus. What does the example of Jesus show us about the dichotomy between sharing the gospel and feeding people? There are lots of instances that we could pull up in Scripture, but um, we're going to look here. Let's look at Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Now, it, if you're unfamiliar with the gospel, I, I want to let you know that like, we, we, often, we often talk about Jesus' 12 disciples, right? 
his 12 followers. But if you read the Gospels closely, you'll see and notice that Jesus always had a large, large, large crowd of people chasing him around, right? The ancient Near East wanting to hear his teaching, wanted to see miracles. That's why it says all the time that, the, that Jesus escaped from the crowd or he put himself out in the boat so that he could get some space or that he went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or he escaped to a solitary um, place or he fed the 5,000 or he pushed his way through the crowd. He was always surrounded with people, always involved in teaching, healing, um, exercising demons from people's lives, right? And in one of these instances, it says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. This is Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. Bro just wanted some time to himself, Right? When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, what did he do when he saw the large crowd who obviously was like really, really like sponging up the presence of Jesus, sponging up the ministry of Jesus, probably sponging up the heart of Jesus? When he saw the large crowd, instead of being annoyed that they had followed him to the other side when he just wanted to get away from them, the word says that he had compassion on them and he healed their sick as evening approached the disciples came to him and said uh, hey Jesus this is kind of a out of the way place it's really remote um, and it's getting kind of late can you send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food can you read between the lines there the disciples were like, we don't want to be responsible for feeding all these people. There's a ton of them. We're way out in the middle of nowhere. And what is Jesus' response to them? <laughs> we're not sending them away. You feed them. Feed them. It wasn't this attitude of like, well, I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't know, guys. There's a lot of people here, and I don't know if they really deserve the meal. I don't know if they've worked for it or not. I'm sure they actually got food back at home. I'm not sure we should give them anything. No, Jesus' response to the crowd was, what, was not one of um, suspicion. It was not one of, well, if they work hard for it. If they all have jobs, we'll, we'll, get them, we'll give them meals. Right? No, his, the, the only thing that the Gospel writer here, Matthew, says is Jesus' attitude towards the people is compassion. And when the, need is, when the need is witnessed of their hunger, Jesus said to his followers, no, we're, we're, we're not going to tell them to go away and just take care of themselves. They are here. We are here. We will meet this need. And then goes into, of course, the rest of the story. We have here only five loaves and um, uh, of bread and two fish. And Jesus says, bring them to me. He directed the people to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And he gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. 
and the disciples picked up the twelve baskets of broken pieces that were left over, and the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, a.k.a. about 10,000 people, besides women and children. So if we take just even one instance, and we could maybe talk about a few others, if we take even one instance and continue to go on, we could say that when Jesus saw the need, he reacted in compassion and moved his disciples to feed them without any qualification, without any suspicion of whether or not they deserved it. Were there some wealthy people there? Undoubtedly, there was wealthy people in that crowd. Were there people there who had food at home? Undoubtedly. Did it matter to Jesus one iota who the person was, whether or not they deserved it, what they had or didn't have? It appears not. It appears that Jesus' only attitude towards the person, towards the people, towards the crowd, was compassion at their need. So we have Jesus' example here in Matthew chapter 14. But we, we, we don't just have an example of Jesus, we also have teaching of Jesus. Where he doesn't just like do something which makes us have to like try and parse out what he did as a meaning, but he actually like flat out teaches some things. And in Matthew chapter 25, he tells this parable or this story of the sheep and the goats. And if you're, if you're familiar um, with this uh, parable, you'll know where this is going. But in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says these things, starting at verse 31. He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. And all of, his na all of the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. So Matthew, the gospel writer here, um, is recording the words of Jesus. Okay, So Jesus is saying, essentially, this is what's going to happen at the end of time. When the Son of Man, when I come back with my angels, right, I'm going to be sitting on the heavenly throne. All of the nations, all of the people will be standing before me and I will, sh I will separate them from the, like the sheep and the goats. So if I was standing there listening to what Jesus was saying in this moment, I'd want to be like, oh geez, I wonder what a sheep is. I wonder what a goat is. And I hope I'm in the good side. And so then Jesus goes on to say, all right, here is... Well, what, how, does Jesus, this is, how does Jesus define... Jesus has all of the resources of all of heaven, right? All of wisdom and knowledge of God wrapped up in who he is. And how does he describe those who are sheep and those who are goats, right? Perfect theology, excellent church attendance record, right? Um, tithe all the time. Um, never kicked the dog, nice to the neighbor, right? Jesus, right? Jesus could have described it however he wanted to, right? Agreed? Jesus could have said whatever he wanted. How did he describe him? Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, 
Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? Or when did we see you thirsty and feed you and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick and in prison and go to visit you? And the king, Jesus himself, says to them, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine you have done for me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's not the side I want to be on. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, a stranger, needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? And he replied, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So I think it's fair to say that Jesus had at his fingertips, at the tip of his tongue, the ability to describe those righteous and those, I guess you could call, unrighteous in whatever categories and whatever characteristics that he wanted to, right? Great, like perfect orthodox theology, perfect Sunday school attendance, great tithing record, never kick the dog, always take the garbage out for your wife, what, you know or over here, like whatever the case may be, right? He could have described it any way he wanted to. He chose to describe it in the way that those who follow him uh, meet the most basic needs of those who need it most. He could have said anything. He could have used any descriptors. You could try and make the argument that, well, Jesus was using these things as spiritual metaphors, like he was really talking about feeding them the gospel or giving them streams of living water for something to drink or clothing them with grace. And, like, just stop. Stop with that. Like, 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 like don't choose the most complicated translation because it fits what you already believe rather than taking the words of Jesus when there is no indication that they mean anything else at surface because they strike at the heart of something that you've always believed. So we have the example of Jesus, we have the teaching of Jesus, but we also have now the example of the early church. Well, that was Jesus, but did that like 
Did that continue on in the life of the church? Like that was, was that a desire of Jesus to carry on? We had the practice now of the early church. And one of the very first things that the early church noticed, right, is that there was a, um, a disconnect, right, in, the, in the, like, the logistical planning of ensuring that those who were most vulnerable among them in the community of faith were getting fed. And so in Acts chapter 6, in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, in those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows... Their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So there was a little like, hey, hey, we are like our group of people over here, right? Like our widows, they're being overlooked in the like, we got this whole group of people over here and y'all are eating over here, but this group of people over here, they're pretty hungry. They're, they're being overlooked. It's like you're seeing right over top of them, not even seeing to them, right? They're hungry. Right? Like, make the connection, okay, in, in, our, in our present circumstances and in the um, demographics of our city and in the, the, um, the cultural separations that we experience all over in Chautauqua County. There are groups of people who are constantly overlooked. Consistently overlooked. And what was the response of the leaders of the church when they recognized that there were people who were vulnerable, widows, who were being overlooked in the distribution of food? They say, they said, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it's not right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom it would seem that they saw the feeding of widows as a spiritual and wise practice. And we will turn the responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And this proposal pleased the whole group. And so they set out these men who were full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, Antioch, So these are, the, these are the men that will do this. These are the men that will ensure that those who are most vulnerable around us, among us, in our community are fed. They're not overlooked in the distribution of food. We don't want them going hungry. They saw it as their responsibility to ensure that the needs of their stomachs were met. And this is not the last thing that we see, or the not, not the last like individual um, example of this type of heart or spirit or attitude or behavior or however you want to put it in, in the Scripture. Uh, the Epistle of James. Why don't you go to the Epistle of James? It's like in the back of your Bible. Turn to your right. Right? Find Hebrews. If, you've gone to, if you get to Revelation, you've gone too far, go back to the left. Okay? 
Okay, so if you're in the book of James, I'm going to start at verse 14. Okay, what, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and without daily food. That's pretty, pretty straightforward, right? If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed. Basically, it's like the, the, the contemporary equivalent of saying, hey, God bless. God bless. You don't got food, you don't got clothes, but hey, God bless you. Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. We jump down to verse 20. You foolish men, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and that his faith was made complete by what he did. The inference here, or the communication of James, who we presume is the James that was the brother of Jesus, says that proclamations of, go, I wish you well, when a need is witnessed, God bless, hope you have a great day, but that is not met with the physical action of trying to meet the need according to your own resources, makes the proclamation of, hey, God bless, worthless. It, it, it may make you feel good. But, but understand that, that it does not, you know, you're, you're not winning points in the heavenly realm. You see, James says that the, that the spiritual thing, or faith, and that the action thing, or works, must function together, or they die. Faith without works finds no incarnation, right? Works without faith turns into just a legalistic sense of my own righteousness. But when we bring them together, right, they function as God has desired them to do. Maybe we could go so far as to say, according to what James says here, right, where he says, 
if you say, hey, I wish you well, go and have a great day, or God bless, or whatever, but does, does nothing, right, to actually meet the need, you might even be willing to say, to even go to the length of saying that proclamation alone, proclamation of a gospel-centered reality, proclamation alone is an incomplete expression of faith. It's incomplete. Proclamation alone is incomplete. James tells us basically that in verse 22. You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. That the proclamation alone of someone's faith is incomplete. It must be coupled with the action that is required to see the need and to work to meet it. Now, if we need more like grounding in like the heart of God and the, the, like, the theological premise of God, we need to look no further than now our number one core value, Jesus is everything, right? Like it all starts like middle, beginning, and end. It's all about Jesus. Then Jesus is the ultimate example. Jesus himself is evidence that sharing the gospel is not just proclamation alone. What do I mean when I say that? Listen, you know what, you know what proclamation alone is called in the Old Testament? It's called the law. All of the things of God. The complete... The, 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 the complete, like, um, the complete record of righteousness, right? The law was set before the people. It was the, it was the, it was the proclamation of the character and nature and heart and desire of God for his people. It was all proclamation. It was no incarnation. Right? There was no, there was no flesh a tied to it. There was no example of the one or the ones or the many that were fulfilling the fulfilling the, the absolute center and intention of God's heart, right? It was all just proclaimed. It was all just written. It was all just heralded. It was all just passed on from from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation, and it was wholly insufficient to save anyone. But in Jesus, the law, the prophets, all of the writings, right? The whole history of Israel. In Jesus, every Thing that was true about God was incarnated and made flesh. Standing right before us. The goodness of God, the love of God, the compassion of God, the kindness of God, the judgment of God, the justice of God, the works of God, the holiness of God, the glory of God was made real right before the people. 
Not in some spiritual, metaphorical type of way, but, but flesh and bones. The, the stick your finger in my wounds type of reality and see that I am here and that I am alive. That everything that was true about who God was was made actual before the people. It was no longer just proclaimed that God is good. It was shown that God was good. Paul, Paul writes about this in Romans, all over Romans. He says this. He says, um, he says, but God demonstrates. God what? Demonstrates, right? Shows, right? Gives an example of. When I, when I demonstrate something to my son, right? I, I, I bring him alongside of me. Right? And I... Right? Show him the thing, right? And I'll just proclaim it. Hey, go, go do this in this way and that way. God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That the work of Jesus Christ on the cross was not just a proclamation of love, but it was a demonstration of love. Because guess what? If we follow the pattern of Scripture, and we follow the teaching and life of Jesus, then we must believe that sharing the Gospel is both demonstration and proclamation. Not one or the other, but both. We must demonstrate the love of God, and we must proclaim the love of God, but they are not exclusive to each other. Well, yeah, I think it's a kind of a cool thing that we fed people all that time, but did you share the gospel with them? No, we demonstrated the gospel to them. We demonstrated the gospel. And all throughout Scripture, the demonstration of God's love to people overflows in their thanksgiving to God. When the love of God is demonstrated through the people of God to those who are hungry, to those who are sick, to those who are hurting or without clothes or with our widows or are in prison or whatever category you want, when the love of God is demonstrated by the people of God, thankfulness to God overflows. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. When he writes to the Corinthians and he says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11 through 13, right? Paul is um, he's trying to encourage the Corinthian believers to not just be on their like uh, Corinth, the city they were in, was this really cosmopolitan, trendy um, heady type of philosophical city where they like to believe a lot of things, but they were kind of slow on the action part of holiness and demonstration of the gospel. And so Paul would continue to encourage them um, in his ministry to them, and um, he was encouraging them in their 
in their giving, because the, the Corinthian church regularly provided the financial resources necessary for Paul to travel and plant churches in other cities. And they pretty much funded all of the Macedonian churches. Paul's, Paul's ministry worked to the Macedonian churches. And so he says this to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, um, starting in verse 11. He says, you, you, Corinthian believers, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. What does Paul say here? Listen, Corinthian believers, your generosity has provided for ministry, gospel-centered ministry, to be done, needs to be met, prayers to be answered in these other cities, in these other areas, in these other churches. And because of your generosity, those people who have had their needs met, they overflow with thankfulness and thanksgiving to who? To God. Not to Paul, right? Not to the Corinthian church. Not to Conduit Ministries or to Bemis Point United Methodist or whomever, right? But that when we demonstrate the center of the gospel, we are providing people the opportunity to see the goodness of God overflow in their lives and for thankfulness towards God to bubble up. Now, listen, understand that all the time, and as a natural, as a, as a, as a, a, just a natural part of the process of being in ministry like this, you'll have people who say, like yesterday, I mean, how many of you yesterday who are at a site volunteering, um, interacting with people, either got questions like, hey, why are you doing this? How much does it cost? What proof do I have to give uh, or to show you to show that I, I need this meal? Or, or, hey, wow, you guys are so awesome. Thank you so much for doing this to the community. Anyone who was volunteering yesterday hear any of those things? Yeah, most of you, okay? And... And I, I understand that that's a part of it, okay? That, that people 
see that, oh, conduit's doing this. Oh, Bemis Point is doing this. Thank you, thank you, thank you for what you have done. In, 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 in a sense, yeah, okay, we, we, have, we are undertaking obedience to what we believe is our best understanding of the gospel and ministry of Jesus and the role of the church, and we're doing that. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, but listen, understand, our job, our job is to consistently, listen, I can't say this enough, all right? I cannot say this enough. Our job is to consistently lower our stature, to consistently deflect attention away from us and to the glory of God, to the love of God through Jesus Christ as both the reason that we can do these things and the reason that we do do those things. It is not about being the most trendy church. It is, not be, it is not about being a hip church. It's not about being the only church that meets those needs. It's not about any of that. It's not about us at all. At all. I don't care if, if no other church saw it. I don't care if anyone outside of this room recognized. I don't care if a single picture was taken. I don't care if there was a single thank you or you guys are great. I don't care a single bit at all. Because our job is not about exalting and glorifying and making a name for us. Our job is about exalting and glorifying and making a name for Jesus. To both demonstrate His love and to proclaim His love. To both demonstrate the gospel and to proclaim the gospel. And look, if you have any questions about whether or not we proclaim the gospel, I proclaim the gospel about 52 times a year. Okay? And there was lots of gospel proclamation yesterday. And there was lots of prayer happening around those parking lots. And there was lots of relationships being forged. And there was lots of trust gained. And I am confident because God is faithful to continue in the good work that he started through us that there will be many expressions of thankfulness to God around Thanksgiving tables this coming Thursday. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. I don't even know how to talk to you, God, but thank you. And you know what God, you know what God does when people who don't know how to talk to him talk to him? He talks back. So don't ever get caught up in this like, well, we're a church and we really should, I mean, it's good and everything, I get it, but man, we really, we really missed an opportunity yesterday. We really missed an opportunity. No, you missed an opportunity. You missed an opportunity. We, there was no opportunities missed for the 93 volunteers that were there. There was no opportunities missed. There was an overwhelming demonstration of the power of the gospel. An overwhelming demonstration of the role and love of the church to meet and supply the needs of those who were hungry, those who were thirsty, those who were naked. Well, no, no one showed up naked, but there was a few that showed up close. Okay? 
And I know that's funny, but listen, it was freezing yesterday, and there was people without coats. So when I say that yesterday was awesome, I mean it was awesome. It was also like, there was a, probably a half hour period of time where it was heartbreaking because we realized that there were people still in line and we were out of food. Heartbreaking. Like, sick to my stomach, want to run away, hide in a hole. Like, because the need it was great and the pe- there were people there. And I don't, know, I don't know what that means going forward. I'm allowing myself the weekend to just kind of decompress and hear the Lord on it and be like, okay, Lord, like, you taught us a good lesson. You, like, you showed up huge, like, absolute, we consider it, I consider it to be a miracle what happened yesterday because everything happened so well and so smooth and so quickly and so overwhelming. But I also, like, I'm going to celebrate and praise the Lord for that, and remember that great thing that happened. But then I'm also going to ask the question, like, okay, Lord, what, is, what, what else were you showing us yesterday? What, what have we refused to see? What have I refused to see or not seen, you know, in my city, in this community? Lord, how, how can we demonstrate further? How can we proclaim more clearly? How, how can we... How can we lift up and glorify the name of Jesus in these, in these, in these people's lives? Listen, if I, could have, if I could have had a banquet table for all 2,300 people lined up in, that was represented yesterday and like cooked the turkey myself and feed it to them, I, like, that's the heart of it, right? That's the heart of it. I would have... I we, I wish we could have. Maybe we will. Um, the end. <laughs> I don't know how else to land that plane. Um, uh, I love you. I love you all. Wouldn't want to do this um, with any other group of people. Um, it was um, a great day yesterday. I'm super, like, not patronizingly so, but super proud of you. And super impressed by you and super grateful that we get to do this together. Um, and I'm continuing to pray and confident that you will pray with me for... Um, even greater things for the people uh, that, we, that we interact with, that we see, that we meet, um, that we live around uh, in our city. So let me pray for us while the band comes back up and we'll close. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us and your tremendous kindness and mercy, your goodness and love. Lord, I pray that you 
would glorify Your Son, Jesus, in our midst. That You would... Lord, that we would become lower so that Jesus may become greater. Lord, that we would for, for all time be a people who, who, who always ask the question, okay, Lord, how can we both demonstrate and proclaim the Gospel? Lord, help us to be creative in that. Help us to, help us to see ways to both demonstrate and proclaim that breaks through hard-heartedness that meets legitimate needs, that, that, that does not overlook people in our communities, Lord, but that, but that sets us on a path of just like a, a tsunami of Your love rolling down the hills of Jamestown into every single home. Lord, may You utilize us. Lord, I invite You to utilize every gift, every resource, every, every person, Lord, every bit of energy for the, for the proclamation and demonstration of Your Gospel, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.